why is there no public art on the new Grote Bridge? This week, the Grote Road Bridge is front and center. We'll talk with Jason Malifsta about the successes, failures, and why there's no public art. I want another talus dome. We all do. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speak Municipally, episode 131, where it's a month away. The province is reopening, and that means Speaking Municipally live events. The first live podcast will be June 28th, where our special event will be you come up to the microphones and we'll all lick it. This is all brought to you by Pfizer and Moderna. (laughs) Please don't lick the microphones. The Oilers did so poorly this playoff season that they caused Wayne Gretzky to peace out for a second time. The all-time top scorer has accepted a TV analyst job with the American-based Turner Sports in a multi-year contract. Said Gretzky on leaving, quote, I just want to be in the city of champions again, end quote. At press time, we could not figure out whether he was talking about Boston, Pittsburgh, Tampa, Detroit, Inglewood, Los Angeles, or Duncanville, all of which are listed as being referred to by the very interesting and unique nickname. Edmonton Public Schools expects to cut 431 full-time positions next year, most of them teaching positions that were hired to support the online versus in-person choice model offered during the COVID-19 pandemic. Since these positions were filled using federal COVID-19 relief funds and were used to support online learning, which won't be offered next year, the board chair says she doesn't see this as an overall drop in teaching positions. While the board is planning to offer fewer choices to parents next year, Alberta Education is selling this as an advantage, with Minister Adriana Lagrange saying, quote, rather than offering piecemeal a la carte choices to parents, this year we're planning to offer parents the whole buffet. They get everything. 45 student classrooms, abstinence-only education, and a soundtrack consisting of only Kenny's grandpa. They get it all. For our final joke of this episode, the Edmonton Police Association. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this week, the ECF wants to play you this ad. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. You can check out the Well Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation, wherever you get your podcasts. We've been doing the show for quite a couple of years at this point. It was a real throwback when Mac and I were brainstorming this episode's notes. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Grote Road Bridge, which was a uh, headlining topic way back in episode six of Time Immemorial. And to join us on this episode, we've got Jason Malifsta, the branch manager of infrastructure delivery. Welcome, Jason. Good day. How are you? We're doing well. The bridge started construction a couple of years ago, first major renewal in quite some time, a few decades, I think, and just opened up again back in November 2020. Is that uh, is that roughly where we're at on the project? Yeah, we started in 2019 and finished this uh, past fall. Great. So you've been at the city for, I think you just celebrated your 20th anniversary, right? Absolutely. I am surprised. I don't think I shared that, but yeah, 20 years this month. 
Congratulations. LinkedIn is a wealth of information. <laughs> uh, and you've, you've held, I think, at least 10 different roles throughout that time. But I mean, you're here talking about the Grote Road Bridge because you are, as Troy said, branch manager of infrastructure delivery. Maybe, first of all, you could just tell us what that means and why you're the right person to talk to about the bridge. Yeah, I, I mean, um, there's a lot of people involved in bridge projects. I am one person. I am the branch manager for infrastructure delivery, which includes our transportation infrastructure delivery folks. So a lot of the project managers that deliver our road and bridge projects. And then we have facility infrastructure delivery. So our buildings infrastructure uh, design and construction. So similar portfolio of project managers and staff that uh, are responsible for those types of projects. And then I have two other um, groups that report to me. One is our Yellowhead Freeway project, which is a kind of a separate standalone team dedicated to support that project. And then another group um, that includes our Project Management Center of Excellence, as well as our Construction Materials and Engineering Testing Group. So I noticed there's a delivery at the end of your title, and I seem to recall there is also a branch manager of infrastructure. How does your role differ from some of the other infrastructure people at the city? Yeah, so I when we set about to create the Integrated Infrastructure Services Department, we brought together a lot of different folks who were involved in infrastructure at the city. And at the time, there was a lot of um, focus on trying to be more intentional about the work that we were doing, um, both from a planning and design perspective and then delivery. And delivery is really intended to encapsulate some of the finer design elements, the tender preparation, tender drawings, um, setting up the, the contract documents, and then the actual execution of the construction. So I, I have a counterpart um, within our, our department, uh, Ms. Pascal Latissour, who looks after the infrastructure planning and design. So her group is mirrored very closely and similarly to mine. She does a lot of the front-end planning and design work with her team. And then our group is responsible for kind of the execution. So let's talk a little bit about execution, because Grote Road Bridge is the headlining project right here. And the bridge opened to much fanfare in November after being under construction for 60 or 70 years, it felt like. But there's still a little bit of work left to be done, correct? Can you give us a brief update on what's still outstanding? Yes, we any project, there's always kind of remaining deficiency work, you know, some kind of landscaping, cleanup and, and things like that. So as a, a contractor kind of works towards um, his primary focus is getting the the bridge open and back open to traffic, that being pedestrians and cyclists on the sidewalk and then roads open to, to its intended service. At the same time, they're also looking to try to demobilize from the site and basically remove a lot of their equipment and, and material. So as part of that, there is, um, you know, extended work to clean it up. We do kind of what's called a construction completion inspection. So we go out and ensure that all the contractual kind of requirements in terms of scope and quality have all been met. And if there's anything that's identified in terms of deficiencies, we take note of that. And basically, once a contractor is executed on all that, it starts kind of the warranty period of the work. So um, we have kind of two milestones that we kind of measure our contractor's completion and performance against. One is open for intended service. So when the bridges open up back to traffic and then two, when they've met 100% of the contractual obligations. So this project, I think, was announced as on time and on budget. And so that accounts for that period of time where they're addressing those deficiencies and finishing up the landscaping and that sort of thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the things over the last couple of years is we, a lot of our communications and messaging to the public, we try to focus on kind of the citizen's perspective when they're trying to understand when a project's complete. It's when they're expected to be able to use that that piece of infrastructure. So uh, another good example on the building side is you may have a building that's complete and the contractor's moved out. But if we built a rec center, you may not have the fitness equipment in or the pool might be, might not be filled with water or, or things like that. So there's a bit of a time, what you call kind of the commissioning period. And basically we have to allocate time for that. So the contractor may be complete, but the building or bridge or road might not be open for intended use. Okay, that makes sense. And just quickly on the budget, we saw it reported in the media that this was a $48 million project, but I think on the city's page, it talks about a $63 million project. And I know there was some related um, work along Grote Road that was included, I think. Can, can you just clarify for us what the scope of this was? Yeah, so I, I think we, we recognized that to do this work, it would be quite disruptive in terms of just the traffic accommodation and staging. And as part of that, often we, um, recognizing that there's a number of lane closures and things like that, we looked at this um, earlier on in the planning and design phases to try to understand what other work from a kind of a renewal, a life cycle maintenance perspective could also be captured at the same time, just through the op- true opportunity of kind of understanding that we don't want to have to come back three or four or five or 10 years later to um, fix some of the other adjacent infrastructure. So we, at the same time, there's two other kind of structures that are in close proximity, one being Grote Road over Victoria Park Road, and that bridge was also rehabilitated. And then the um, the one on the on the south side near the Mayfair Golf Course, the overpass there um, near Howerlick Park entrance. So that in adjacent to, and then also including some of the, the kind of approach roads um, were also repaved and things like that. You know, from our my account anyways, the, the bridge project in its entirety, the, the contract work that we were managing was approximately 48 million. Let's talk a little bit about why this project came to be. Was this just general like maintaining the life of a bridge infrastructure or were there deficiencies in the bridge that needed to be upgraded? And that's part of why we did this. Well, I'd, I'd say the answer is probably both. I, you know, I think most of our bridge infrastructure, when we start off planning for new bridges, um, we typically anticipate to get kind of an, a service life of approximately 75 to 100 years. And within that, we, we know that there's certain um, intervals within that time frame from uh, kind of an overall asset management perspective where you need to come in and do kind of preventative maintenance. And so for a bridge, typically that's every 20 or 25 years, um, you have to come in and basically do a, a rehabilitation. Um, so in this case, you know, that was part of some of the planning. And I'm trying to think back, I believe the last time the Grote Road Bridge was rehabilitated was in the mid-90s. Yeah, according to the city's website, it was 8990 was the last time that there was significant rehabilitation. And of course, it was constructed in 1955. So yeah, that's, you know, maybe a little bit longer than we probably would have hoped. You know, typically, like I said, it's about 20, 25 years. But at the same time, every um, couple of years, we have kind of an asset management program where we have a number of staff at the city um, where basically they go out and perform infrastructure um, checks and audits on the condition So we have folks that are skilled and trained to be able to kind of inspect structures. We have people that are skilled and trained to inspect roads. And depending on the type of infrastructure, they um, inspect them either annually or semi-annually. Most of our bridges, specifically the big kind of class A structures over the river are are done every two years. And then probably every five or 10 years, we'll actually 
pull in a third party, some kind of an engineering consultant with a little bit more specialized expertise to do a little bit more exhaustive analysis uh, because the inspections we do are primarily visual. And then they will come in and actually do uh, a more comprehensive sampling of kind of the current state of the condition. And then that also informs some of the prioritization around how we select which bridges are done. And I know with bridges, we tend to talk a lot about the vehicle traffic, but with this particular bridge, one of the upgrades was a 4.2 meter shared use path on the, I want to say that's the east side. Yep. What was the justification of that? Was this bridge identified as like an active transportation corridor, a piece of critical infrastructure there, or was this just upgrading to standards across the board? Uh, again, uh, probably the answer is a little bit of both. Um, a large part of our work is informed um, by three parts. Um, so when we kind of go about and selecting the infrastructure from a renewal perspective based on its condition and need, then we start to kind of layer on kind of all the different policy dimensions around kind of active transportation, how it fits in the broader network, how it fits in the context of things like city plan, um, and then kind of some of the technical um, inputs related to kind of CSA bridge code design standards and uh, even some of our own city standards around kind of um, active pathways and making sure that we've got enough clear space for two-way traffic. Um, so all of those things kind of get factored in. And then the last thing, um, of course, then too, is we do some public engagement. So those three things kind of help formulate kind of the approach and path to how our, our projects are scoped. It's interesting that you talk about some of the other policy perspectives, because what brought this bridge to our attention recently was the Percent for Art program, in that there's no art on the Grow Road Bridge. This is a roughly $50 million project. When we think of bridge projects, you know, you think of the Talus Dome, the uh, quintessential percent for public art. And that was a bridge project. You got a piece of public art beside the bridge, and that's noticeably missing from this bridge project. Where was the determination made and why was the determination made that this bridge didn't qualify for the percent for public art? Yeah, so I, I think that goes back to the very beginning of kind of how this project was selected and, and kind of how it fit into our kind of infrastructure programming and budgeting. And, uh, you know, this project came about as kind of a, a renewal and a life cycle maintenance project. And a large part of how the percent for art policy is, as I've come to experience and learn and, and use it and apply it to projects is that that policy is was derived with kind of a focus towards some of our more growth projects. So when I use the term renewal and growth, growth is for projects where you're building something that did either didn't exist or you're expanding the use or function or capacity of that, that uh, piece of infrastructure. And then typically that 1% would get applied to the whatever growth aspects are included in that project. And if it's substantial enough to be able to warrant the development of, of some kind of an art piece, then we put aside uh, part of the budget to be able to accommodate that. But that's usually done in, in consultation with the um, Edmonton Arts Council and uh, a few other folks within city administration to kind of determine whether or not first the eligibility fits, um, whether it should be applied, and then... Uh, how it gets budgeted and supported, and then how it gets planned and advanced. The uh, shared use path is an example of something that's new here or expanded, but what I'm hearing is it was deemed maybe not significant enough to warrant putting aside some of the budget of that part of it for art. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's my understanding. I, like at the very earliest part of the project, we, we do typically provide a bit of an assessment of what we would understand 
most of our renewal programs um, do have a little bit of capacity for things like growth, um, but it's usually pretty limited. So in this, in this case, obviously, we're trying to at least meet the minimum requirements for our, our active pathway movements. Um, so trying to remember exactly what the previous width of that sidewalk was, but probably about 1.8 meters, and we widened it to approximately 4.2 meters, so 3 meters plus 0.6 on both sides. So kind of in the, in the span of the overall project and all the renewal work that was being planned, the deck replacement across that couple meters of width that was added wasn't a substantial amount of growth to be able to warrant um, setting aside a specific uh, art investment on this project. We've asked the uh, Edmonton Arts Council for some information about the Present for Art policy, and they've uh, told us that it's under review right now. And and uh, should be coming back in the fall with uh, potentially some updates, first significant updates on that policy in quite some time. But I'm kind of struck by what you're saying here that it's a bit, it's not clear. Like a group of people have to make a determination. Is that is that challenging to work with? No, I, I think, you know, when the, when the policy was first created, there was a lot of kind of detail that kind of needed to be flushed out and figured out as we worked to try to apply it. And translate council's direction in a way that we could apply it within our projects. And like most things that we do that are a little bit innovative or new or novel, um, you know, sometimes we don't always have those details and we kind of have to work through it iteratively. And so I'm, I'm equally pleased to hear that there's an update to the percent for art policy. And if there's kind of for further clarity around aspects like this, I think, uh, you know, personally, I'm, I'm a supporter of the arts and, and, you know, I like some of the structures and, and pieces of art that have been built like the talus, talus balls. Um, so I, I would have been, you know, personally, probably equally interested to see something at every one of our bridges. Personally, I also think that bridges themselves are art, but I think if we had something a little bit more definitive and clear um, in terms of kind of guidance and advice from from council and in a bit of a policy update that that would be probably helpful. I want to talk briefly about our existing policy, though, because when Matt got the answer back about, you know, this bridge didn't necessarily meet the requirements for growth, I have to admit I was a bit perplexed because I'm familiar with the percent for art policy. And it pretty clearly defines any publicly accessible municipal project as, quote, any municipal project, whether new construction or renovation. So I'm wondering where this growth stipulation came from. Is this in some city administration procedure somewhere? I don't seem to see that requirement anywhere in the actual policy. Yeah, to be honest, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. But, uh, you know, my how I've come to understand how it's applied. Um, typically, we engage, like I said, Edmonton Arts Council and other folks within city administration to be able to make an assessment. And kind of over the last, um, trying to remember when the art policy was first created, but probably about 10 years ago, you know, generally it's been applied to, so even in, in the definition you provided, it, it almost sounds like it refers to facility projects because we don't renovate bridges, we rehabilitate them, which is a little bit of a nuance on the, on the word language. But essentially, um, you know, I think a lot of our facility projects, when we come in and do renovation, there is oftentimes a lot more capacity from a kind of a growth funding perspective. And perhaps maybe that's what's influencing how it's being applied. But yeah, I'm probably speculating more than anything there. Uh, I love that you talked about bridges themselves as being art. We had uh, former Mayor Mandel on the show recently and got to ask him about his infamous no more crap line, talking about building beautiful things. Is that kind of what you mean? Or, or maybe you could expand on that a little bit. 
I think I see a lot of kind of architectural elements and kind of the structure itself. And yeah, I think every bridge kind of tells a unique story and like you can drive around the city and know almost when, when things were built during kind of a tight economic times versus times when maybe we were a little bit more robust economically and in a growth period or, you know, of course there's some of the more signature and iconic ones like high level bridge and the Walterdale bridge. But I think there's a lot of kind of hidden gems around the city the Wellington Bridge is probably one of my favorites. It's, um, you drive over it and you don't really notice just how great it is until you kind of walk underneath it. We talked with Stephen Mandel about this. The new Walterdale Bridge, it's TikToker's dream. Uh, people gather around there and take many a selfie, many a Instagram video around that bridge. But that bridge, again, was another one of the challenging bridges to deliver. We've had a few of those in recent memory in Edmonton, the other Groat Road Bridge with the bent girders. This Groat Road Bridge, which closed down Groat Road for a couple years intermittently, and of course, the Walterdale Bridge. Were there any major lessons or takeaways from the delivery of this bridge to guide project management in the future? Things that were done poorly on this bridge that may that that we've taken away lessons that we can apply and do better on subsequent projects. Yeah, I think one of the things we're doing a lot more is including contractors in some of the early planning and design and construction phasing and methodologies and that's I think one of the things that helped inform as much as uh, I think one of you mentioned that it, it may have felt like it was 60 years um <laughs> you know, I think in the in the past we were very optimistic and aggressive and, and really provided some very tight windows of time to be able to kind of allow contractors to be successful in terms of um, their ability to be able to complete and meet expectations from the public. So I, I think having them involved in some of the front end planning to help inform some of the design aspects that they have kind of a unique ability to be able to understand from a construction staging perspective has been absolutely fantastic. I think one of the you know, lesser known facts about uh, the contractor who delivered on, on the Groat Road bridge over the river is the same contractor who delivered on the 102nd Avenue bridge over Groat Road. So we know that there's good construction companies out there with um, invaluable experience, kind of boots on the ground experience in terms of kind of getting to know how to build these. And uh, so having them involved earlier on in the project has been really valuable in trying to understand. And I think one of the things that we typically would have assumed earlier on in this project is we would have expected that we would have had to tear apart the bridge deck of Groat Road Bridge, but piece by piece, basically jackhammer it to pieces and then basically build a false structure underneath and a scaffold system to be able to catch all the debris and then kind of hand take it away from underneath the bridge. But the contractor came back with kind of and I don't know if you would have noticed it, but there was kind of a, a temporary bridge and a gantry system that was used over top of the structure to basically saw cut out the bridge in big blocks and then basically crane it off the bridge as opposed to letting it drop below and catching it in pieces. You know, I think that's probably one of the biggest examples on this project where we were able to leverage some really invaluable construction expertise um, to make sure that the project got done. One of the things that stands out to me on the project was... <laughs> It felt definitely for people that use it as an active transportation as a bit of a bait and switch. The original drawings had 2.4 meter walkways in phase one and then 1.8 meter walkways in phase two, which was subsequently reduced to 1.5 meters in phase one and then 1.6 meters in phase two, basically at the project started. And then as the project progressed, 
the walkways tended to get narrower and narrower. Uh, was this a case of the contractors weren't engaged early on and the designs were false because of it? Or what, what guided that, that conflict? Because it was a very public conflict. Yeah, no, I, I remember that specifically. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously we're trying to provide as much room as possible for both the contractor to be able to do their work um, in two phases. So making sure that he's got enough space to be able to um, make sure that he's able to complete the first phase in its entirety so we don't have to come back and finish any pieces in between while trying to also maintain one lane of traffic each way and then some form of a pedestrian accommodation recognizing um, yeah, it was. It's certainly not ideal. Uh, I remember having the signage with the dismounting and uh, knowing that that was one of the the mitigations or compromises that needed to kind of we had to work through. Recognizing that there's only so much space on the existing structure to be able to accommodate both the contractor as well as some of the active forms of transportation. Those being not just active transportation but also the vehicle traffic. So. And then the, the security barriers that we're trying to provide in, in between the traffic and the construction zone. So we've got a good safe clear zone from, from that. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it gets really tight and it's like a, a matter of centimeters and, you know, 10 centimeters means a lot on a project, both for the contractor as well as both for the pedestrians. And unfortunately we made a decision early on that we wanted to be able to protect as much space for the contractor to, to make sure that he had enough space to be able to safely do what he needed to do and, and finish the project on time, recognizing, I think at that point, um, assumedly that uh, we wanted to make sure that we met the public's expectation around delivering this project on time. So when you mentioned the dismount and walk sign as a compromise that was made, in actuality, it's not necessarily so much a compromise as vehicle and constructor spaces were maintained. It was only from the pedestrian. What were some of the compromises that were taken from other sides? Well, it was basically just from the construction zone. The vehicle widths, I don't know the number specifically, but they were essentially at a very bare minimum already, which is typically around 3.2 meters. You know, and this is kind of the rule of thumb that we use from a traffic management perspective. 3.2 meters is essentially the outside dimension of a mirror of a bus from either side. So if you have two buses going the other in, in two different directions, essentially, that doesn't, you're leaving yourself six centimeters on either side or five centimeters. So it's, it's not a lot of space. So essentially, at that point, you can't narrow lanes, vehicle lanes anyways, anymore. So at that point, it basically just becomes, you either have to close a lane of traffic and only have one direction of traffic in one direction, or you're having to be able to kind of try to see what you can do to make up space from either the construction zone or from the sidewalk. Is there no, from project delivery perspective, is there no recognition that maybe that's a problem for future project delivery? I can see in this case, you know, the delay for someone crossing the bridge on a cycle versus being forced to walk was about seven to 10 minutes. We can say, you know, if there was a 10 minute delay on the Hende for three years, uh, that would be an unacceptable delay. Given that, is that acceptable here in this context? Or is there plans for future developments to ensure that in planning and design, something like this doesn't happen? I don't think I can answer that question. Absolutely. I, I think it's what I'm trying to illustrate and is that uh, having to do traffic management often requires a bit of a balancing act of, of competing interests around trying to be able to manage as many movements as we can, as safely as we possibly can, while also trying to protect as much space for the contractor to do and perform their duties. And it's, um, you know, I, I, 
I don't know that I necessarily think that it's just picking one over the other. You know, ideally, we'd want to be able to accommodate as many interests as possible. But in some cases, just based on the existing constraints of, of what we're having to work with, there are some hard choices and decisions and uh, that need to be made. And we do try to um, identify uh, as much as we can those types of trade-offs earlier on in the design process while we've, like I said, we're trying to figure out our construction staging plans. So we do present those to the public to make sure that they have a good awareness of kind of our understanding of what the impacts might look like in terms of going from four lanes of traffic to two lanes or from a three meter wide sidewalk to a 1.5 meter or whatever the choice might be. But we do try to provide information in advance as much as possible to the best of our ability based on the, the details and dimensions that we understand. Um, for the project. We find ourselves in the middle of uh, the pandemic and we have this constant back and forth, it seems, between like, should we shut it all down? Should we sort of leave some stuff open? But then we have to close stuff down again. <laughs> and uh, it made made me think about the bridges. Like, is it feasible ever for these kinds of projects to just completely close it for a short period of time and have the bridge completely constructed? Or are we really not saving that much time while at the same time making it completely inaccessible for people. Yeah, it's it's absolutely um, something that we consider on all, all our projects is, do we do this in one stage, which is a full closure, two stages, half and half, or three stages? And there's kind of pros and cons, and a large part of it depends on the context and the application. 102nd Avenue over Grove Bridge, as you know, was a complete closure. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was just... Um, looking at some of the redundancy that exists within the broader traffic network and whether or not there was capacity on Stony Plain Road to manage some of the displaced and detoured traffic. The unfortunate thing um, when we're dealing with river bridges is that there aren't many crossing points or detour points to be able to accommodate some of that. Yeah. So um, a lot of our river crossings across the city actually are, are all very close from uh, a traffic capacity perspective. So, you know, we can't Detour, especially knowing things like uh, high-level bridges is one way, uh, Walterdale Bridge is one way. You know, there are some very specific constraints in and around the downtown area that we have to be uh, mindful of from not just kind of a local commuter perspective, but from a broader goods movement perspective as well. Well, Jason, you've been great answering all of our questions. Thank you very much. Is there anything else about this project in particular that you think people should know? The only other two things that I, I think I was prepared to to talk a little bit more about if it's at all it has any interest, but um, you know we've been doing approximately one river bridge almost every year, or kind of sequentially since I started with the city. So starting with kind of Beverly Bridge, Clover Bar, Capilano, Walterdale, the old Walterdale, mm-hmm. and uh, so this was kind of one of the remaining pieces leading up to the next final um, edition before we start all over again is a high level bridge which um you know we're expecting is probably going to be coming up here in the next budget cycle so that's probably the next biggest piece so how this bridge fits in kind of the broader sequencing and programming of all the major river bridges okay well thanks so much for uh, joining and putting up with us um that's always a pleasure and we always appreciative when people from the city come and do this because you know, we've been told we can be mean. Um, so <laughs> hopefully it wasn't too bad. No, oh, we boy. think uh, we, we want to help people understand this better. And I think you helped us do that. So thanks again. No, that's exactly the opportunity for me is I think a lot of people 
you know, from the outside looking in, it's hard to understand exactly just what goes into how we plan. And so I'm glad and excited to tell the story of how we do things. So thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. And, you know, um, you're welcome back anytime uh, so we can grill you about the next bridge that you build because high level, we all know that's going to be a, a spicy bridge. Oh, many, many things project. to talk about. <laughs> looking forward to something exciting on that one for sure. So that was Jason. And normally we might just close it after a guest, but there's a bit of a two-parter because Jason was from infrastructure delivery. But part of this conversation was about why is there no public art here? And for that, we talked with the Edmonton Arts Council. Yeah, unfortunately with scheduling, we couldn't get someone on the show to speak about this, but they did uh, answer our questions and give us some pretty detailed answers about uh, this question. And and the first thing we, we just asked them was, you know, what's the deal here? What's Why is this bridge either a qualifying bridge and there's no public art or not a qualifying bridge and that's why there's no public art? And I think what we learned through this process, Troy, is that the EAC and the city are both jointly responsible and that kind of means that no one is. When asking a question like this, like why does this bridge not get art? I do not think there is any person at the city that can give us an answer. If we had gone to the city manager, the city manager would say, well, I don't know the specifics about those details. If we go to either party, they'd say, well, we are responsible for this piece and we did our part, but I don't know about the rest of it. I don't know that it's possible short of like a full counselor inquiry or an auditor investigation to figure out why this decision was made and how these decisions are made long term. Yeah, and I think that's what I was trying to get at when I asked Jason about, you know, is this a, a struggle to work inside the constraints of this policy? Because it's not clear. There are some decisions that need to be made, it sounds like, along the way with almost every single project about which capital projects qualify under the, the current policy, at, at least. And so what we learned from the EAC is that there has to be this substantial growth component. We heard Jason talk a little bit about that as well, so that there's this difference between renewal or, or rehabilitation even, or renovation and growth. Although, as you point out in the policy, that's not what it says. On that note, the policy itself, it's an absurd policy. It's basically, we do art when we say we should do it, and we say we should do it because that's the ones we want to. Like, if you read section 1.15 about qualifying construction budget, that's the rub the budgets that qualify. And it defines it as the portion of the total construction budget that is deemed to be appropriate for the inclusion of public art. There's no guidance whatsoever in this policy. Yeah, the AAC told us that they work with integrated infrastructure services to determine what portion of a construction budget qualifies. It's not spelled out. It's something that needs to be interpreted and decided every single time. And there might normally be some precedence, perhaps it would help those decisions go along. But it sounds like maybe the simplest way to say it is that art isn't the top priority on these projects usually. And being able to say that it's on time and on budget might have an impact on how that is determined. The Percent for Public Art program already had some equity discussions. You know, art was installed at the location of the project to sort of prevent, you know, maybe a bridge being installed in a poorer neighborhood of Edmonton and it's qualifying public art being installed in a rich area downtown. Yeah. You know, there there's an equity issue there. But in the inverse way, with the policy having so much left up for, let's be honest, project managers in St. Albert to decide, there's an equity issue here in that, you know, it's 
up to who knows what decision matrix to decide what project does and doesn't get public art. And that was what this policy was designed to prevent, those project managers having to make that decision and having to make the politically unpalatable decision of spending $600,000 on a talisman. Where the policy is clear is on some of the responsibility pieces. So the city is responsible for actually installing the art and then taking care of the artwork after it's been installed. So that all falls on the city. And the EAC is responsible for procuring the artist and promoting awareness of the civic art collection and managing all the sort of procedures and things for those projects. So they're very clearly working with the artist, but once they've gotten that artist on board and it's ready to be installed, it transitions over to the city to actually make that happen and then to maintain it going forward. You know, we're talking about some of the flaws in this policy and, you know, some more thought that's required. This policy isn't really that old, is it? No, I mean, the, the current uh, policy that's up there, C458C, was effective March 31, 2010. So, I mean, it's not decades old. It's decade old. Decade old, yes. It hasn't had much change. Uh, I mean, it, or even review, sorry. It was reviewed in 2015, and there was a subsequent report that made some policy improvements, but those were deferred because the city was undertaking, by that point, the start of Connections and Exchanges, the new Arts and Heritage Plan, as well as City Plan. And now that those things are done, those plans are approved and adopted, this percent for art policy is currently under review and, and the EAC plans to present an update to city council sometime this fall. I would bet that that will also get delayed because also happening this fall is a municipal election, but I'm willing to be surprised. You know, honestly, I like the percent for our public art program, so I'm happy to have it after the election. This is not something I want put up to a referendum. <laughs> Fair enough. I will add a final comment because, you know, many people think, oh, artists, they're so progressive. They get it. They're on the right side of history. Let me read you one of the quotes from the Edmonton Arts Council in response to our inquiry. It said, quote, Grote Road Bridge and Road Renewal Project was considered to have a predominantly vehicular transportation function and not being a pedestrian space suitable for public art, end quote, as justification for its lack of inclusion in the Percent for Art program. I'm going to say, really out of touch statement right there. Yeah, I mean, just to broaden the context a little bit, they say that that decision is made in collaboration with the city. They could just be telling us what was ultimately decided by the project managers in the room, but still, it's not very reflective of the true use of that bridge, which, as you said, is kind of like the primary way for, what, five multi-use trails and right next to our biggest park? like It's the intersection of five major multi-use trails directly beside Horlack Park, which, if you remember Heritage Day snafus, we turned off cars to that park. So, like, biking is the only way to get there short of taking a bus. Yeah. I think it is massively incorrect to say that eh, this isn't really an active transportation corridor. So I don't think we necessarily got a clear, concrete, definitive answer to why there's no public art there, Troy. I think there should have been some public art there. As we started this, it sort of just raised more questions because I like to think, oh, well, you know, the Quinell Bridge was a similar bridge rehabilitation. Why did they get the Talus Dome? I mean, obviously, that's not a pedestrian utopia on the white mud. But then we started looking into the Quinell Bridge and the budget for the Quinell Bridge, $155 million. So a percent for public art would have been one and a half million. Talus Dome was 600000 What's going on there? If you look at the capital profile, it has it 100% growth, no rehab. So 
More questions than answers this week. Future episodes. Of course, we can't do stuff in the future if podcast doesn't get paid and NLED wants to do that for us. This episode is brought to you by Natural Light Edmonton. Over the last year, staying home has become our new way of life. We've all been doing our part to help keep each other safe. Still, it's not hard to miss those special moments of connection with your loved ones. But what if we told you that these moments could still happen all while you're safe in your own backyard? Natural Light Edmonton provides custom-designed luxury sunrooms, balcony enclosures, decks, patio covers, and gemstone lights. With their help, you can turn your outdoor space into a place for rest, for relaxation, for connection. A place where you can truly live in the moment and plan for more moments to come. A place, dare I say, where you can have the best summer ever. You can learn more about Natural Light Edmonton and discover outdoor comfort at my-naturallight.com. That's my-naturallight.com. The fact that Matt could read that copy unironically is how you know that Troy cannot be bought. I tried. I tried. (laughs) Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Jason. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.